0: You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Music Legends. I'm your host, Chili Willie, aka the king of a one-horse town, and I'm back with another installment of The Untamed Life and Legend of Miles Davis. This is episode 9 of the season, so if you are just finding out about the show, I'd highly recommend to go check out the first eight episodes of the season, otherwise you're not gonna know what's going on here. That said, when we left off last episode, Miles had ventured outside of his home for the first time in years and ended up all the way in Connecticut for an interview with a beautiful reporter named Julie Corio, although Miles was hoping for a little more than just an interview. Julie and Miles were sitting on opposite ends of her couch. Julie put her notepad down for the first time in two hours and looked at Miles. It's getting late. You're more than welcome to stay in our guest house for the night. Nah, nah, I gotta get going, he said. But Julie insisted. It's okay if you stay. There was some serious awkward tension at that moment, as Julie obviously cared about Miles, but purely and only out of admiration. Miles, on the other hand, took it as a completely different kind of invitation. So he smirked, thanked Julie, and accepted the invitation. Great, I'll show you to the guest house, she said and leaped off the sofa. As the two walked to the guest house, there was no talking, there was only thinking. Miles thought about the ring he'd noticed on Julie's finger during the interview and the implications of what was about to happen. Julie thought about the broken way Miles walked and wondered if he was in pain. Of course he was, but he was typically too intoxicated to feel anything. His hip was failing miserably and walking didn't help. They arrived through the backyard at a small quaint cottage-like building near their pool, which was currently covered for the winter. Julie fumbled with the keys for a moment and then opened the door. At that moment, she felt the jolt of warmth rush through her body standing in the cold doorway. Julie smiled. She was just glad that Miles had somehow emerged from his house, and she had no idea about the truly terrible conditions Miles was staying in. Miles walked in the guest house and took a deep breath. Don't hesitate to let me know if you need anything, she said. But then, just when she went to close the door, the warmth she felt was gone and traded for nausea and her smile turned to a face of outraged disgust. She was frozen in the doorway as Miles started to disrobe right in front of her. Oh, well, all I need at the moment is you, he said as he continued to undress. And that was it, the breaking point that shattered Julie's frozen stance. Her composure bounced back and became more powerful. Listen, Mr. Davis, it's obvious you hate yourself, and that's... Not exactly a turn-on. She paused, grabbing the doorknob with one hand, and lifted up the other, showing her shiny diamond ring. And I'm married. She shut the door, leaving Miles naked and alone. Miles lay on the bed in silence, although his thoughts were loud. Humiliated, confused, and sick to his stomach from not having consumed a single pill, line of coke, or bottle in several hours. Miles stared at the ceiling until his thoughts blared through the microphone of his mind. He closed his eyes in search of a moment of peace. And he was close to it too, when out of nowhere, he remembered a bottle of pills he had stashed in his jacket pocket. He staggered across the room and put his clothes back on. Sure enough, the bottle of pain pills was right where he left it. He desperately dumped the full bottle of pills in his palm. Some pills spilled on the floor and the rest miles stuffed in his mouth. The pills kicked in almost immediately, starting with his fingertips. First, he felt a tingling sensation, and then they started to go numb. He dropped the empty bottle on the floor and stumbled back across the room, barely making it back to the bed before collapsing. This was the only way he could get a moment of peace anymore. It was an unnatural, synthesized moment of peace that he'd grown completely dependent on. Now, while Miles was out cold, quite the opposite was true for Julie. She was too busy making calls and arrangements for her new unlikely guest, periodically peeking out her window, noticing the light still on in the guest house. It had to be around midnight by now. No wonder this guy looks like hell. He doesn't even sleep, she thought to herself. But on another note, She also thought it might be a good time to call her husband, Larry, who was on tour in Europe at the time. And ironically, he was also the guitarist Miles rejected to play in his band two years prior, instead picking John McLaughlin. She also called a mutual friend, Elena Steinberg. When Elena heard that Miles had emerged from his cave of solitude and was in her neck of the woods, well, she made plans to pay a visit the following day. When Julie hung up the phone, she felt much more comfortable about the situation that was unfolding in her guesthouse. So she closed her blinds as the morning sun began to warm the chilly air and tried to get some shut-eye. It was around 3 p.m. the next afternoon when Elena knocked on the Coriel's hard wooden door, and not a second soon enough. Julie greeted Elena with a quick hug, but the walk over to the guesthouse was quiet. Julie was filled with apprehension, She already told Elena what happened last night on the phone, and she was definitely glad to have her by her side in case anything went wrong. Elena pounded on the door. Miles, it's me, Elena! Julie stood next to her with the key in hand, ready to open up the door in case of emergency. Elena kept knocking. She knocked louder and louder, with increasing panic. Still, no answer. Finally, Elena turned around, and gave Julie a nod, so she slid the key in the doorknob. And as she turned the key with a shaking hand, she realized the door was already open. The first thing they saw when they opened that door were the scattered pills and empty bottle on the ground, and then their shocked eyes slowly moved up to see an unconscious Miles laying on the ground as well. Elena ran across the room and jumped on Miles, slapping him, wake up, wake up. Meanwhile, Julie ran to the phone on the bedside table and dialed 911. The room was in panic mode. And just in time, Julie checked his pulse. No, Julie, seat. hang up, hang up. He's okay. They only wanted to get the authorities involved if it was absolutely necessary. So she hung up the phone. The two took a simultaneous deep breath and tried to figure out how in the world they were going to wake him up. And as it turned out, only time would do the trick. Miles finally opened his groggy eyes after an 18-hour nap. The room was dark, except for a red glow emanating from the brand new digital clock on the nightstand that read 4.12am. Miles hobbled out of bed, feeling like a rusty penny, and flicked on the light. And that's when he saw a passed-out Julie and Elena, spread out in adjacent chairs. Elena? That you? Wait, you two know each other? the hell are you doing here? <sighs> Elena yawned, well, look who's finally up. Come on, get up, let's go get some breakfast, we got a lot to catch up on. A few hours had passed, the sun was now peeking its bright head over the horizon. The three slowly migrated to the large industrial but homely kitchen in the main house. The smell of bacon filled the early morning air. Well was more like burning bacon. As the three fell into conversation, they instantly forgot about the bacon they had sizzling away on the skillet. Elena was one of Miles' best and only friends. In the 60s, Miles was more of a father to her than he was to his own blood kids. And the two stayed close after that, even after he fell into retirement. She called him once per month or so just to check up on him. And every month, he seemed less himself, less human. Miles, I got you the interview with Julie. We're friends. We have been for a long time. You don't remember any of this? I I, I guess it's coming back to me now, he said, looking at the ladies and scratching his head. They were all still hungry. And Miles, he was literally starving. He was weak and skinny he looked like a zombie, although he still looked a little bit better than he did just a day earlier before drugging himself into an 18-hour coma. But there was something in the air that morning, more than just the smell of fresh coffee and scrambled eggs. There was a restful, warm feeling shared by the three. But within Miles, there was also dark feelings. He stared out the window, letting his mind run wild. But for some reason, None of his thoughts came in the form of words, only melodies. The more melodies began to rush through his mind, the better he felt, physically and emotionally. He'd been fighting these melodies for years now. He associated those melodies with pain, with work, with constant, grueling work, and he couldn't stop it. He drank those melodies away. He drugged himself into an 18-hour coma. Hell, he would do just about anything to avoid those melodies. It was clear now, that strategy wasn't working so well. Deep down, he was scared. And it wasn't the melodies he was afraid of, but everything that came with them. In Miles's mind, it was the melodies that had destroyed his life. Not the fear itself. As his train of thought was evolving, so was that same fear. Miles turned around from the window in hopes of escaping the waterfall where the rapids of his stream of thought seemed to be taking him. But no one can escape a thought. When he turned around, the first thing he saw was a grand piano glistening in the new morning sun. Miles stood there and stared at the piano for a little while. But something drew him to it. Who knows what exactly. But, like I said, there was something in the air that morning. And the next thing he knew, he was sitting down, with his fingers spread across those keys, motionless and emotional. Miles hadn't been this close to music in years, and now he was staring it right in the face. The ladies stopped dead in their tracks to observe Miles, sitting at that piano, waiting for the moment so many people had been waiting for. The suspense grew and grew, but then out of thin, suspenseful air. A terrible sound erupted. A sound that could only be created from pure emotion. Miles broke into tears, lunged to cover his face, and his elbows hit the piano, making a dissonant, disgusting sound. The noise shattered the anticipation of the room, but luckily, not a window. Although, the sound did break something. It broke the ice for Miles and his old friend turned enemy, music, to start a new conversation. Even though they weren't exactly musical or intentional, they were the first notes Miles had played in years. That was the beginning. The beginning of what would be a long recovery for Miles. One of Elena's many talents was that she could convince Miles of almost anything. And even for Elena, it wouldn't be easy to convince Miles to stay with her at her house in Connecticut instead of going back to his depression hole in Manhattan. But given the events that had just transpired in the last 48 hours, she had managed to do the impossible. So Miles did end up staying with Elena, and the longer he stayed, the more it began to resemble somewhat of a normal life. And after all, he was in the country, and it was a big difference from the urban atmosphere he'd grown used to. He would watch the chipmunks every day for hours, scurrying in, out, and all around the backyard, chirping and communicating with one another. He was also still avoiding the constant stream of melodies invading his mind. Even after his first accidental encounter with music, he wasn't quite ready to fully embrace it again. So instead, he and Elena would cook. He actually taught her how to make paella. The two would sit on the lawn and read. By the third month, he was beginning to let the melodies back into his mind. Slowly, he was beginning to recognize that music wasn't the enemy. the fear of it was, and he slowly began itching to face that fear. One thing that played a key role in Miles' healing process, a recording studio. And it just so happened that Elena had one in her house. There was a Steinway Grand, drums, guitars, and so much more, all just sitting there, just waiting to be played. But there wasn't much waiting. Bill Evans Miles' old bandmate and legendary jazz pianist, came over just about every day. Elena met Bill Evans back in the 60s when he was still in Miles' band. They didn't speak much after that. That is, until she called him late one night and told him that Miles was staying at her house. Impossible, he thought. He'd been trying to get him out of his house for years. Bill had to see it to believe it. So, he came to Elena's house. At first, just to catch up with Miles. He started visiting almost every day. He began each visit just catching up with Miles for a bit, then venturing off into the home studio, always inviting Miles. But every time he asked, Miles would say something along the lines of, I ain't even stepping foot in that room. Then, one day, one very special day, he did. But, of course, he bickered and moaned when he heard the ringing of the piano keys. And that went on for a few weeks. It was a long process to retrain his brain. But then, on another very special day, Miles finally sat down at that grand piano, laid his finger on a random key, and let the gravity of his hand push it down. He sat there and closed his eyes, letting the sound of it resonate for a while, just taking it all in. Miles took it step by step, one note at a time, letting it evolve. And Bill was there, helping him through it day by day, slowly teaching him piano. Miles was fascinated by the sound of the piano. He would slowly walk his fingers up and down the keys. And finally, he stopped trying to escape the melodies that constantly filled his mind. The feelings of fear he had slowly turned into gratitude for each and every moment his hands were on those keys. It was gradual, but in time, he ended up calling old buddies, even old enemies, strategizing a new band. Most of them already had enough on their plate. Some of them outright hung up on Miles, but a small few were intrigued, especially because this time Miles wouldn't be playing the horn, but the keys. That small few included keyboardists Masabumi Kikuchi and George Pavlis, bassist T.M. Stevens, drummer Al Foster, and guitarist Larry Corio. That's right, even Julie's husband came down to Elena's home studio. And all with hopes of witnessing what Miles did best. Sure enough, when Miles walked in with the musicians that day, he had a piece arranged but not completely written. And they played the hell out of that piece. They played it up-tempo, down-tempo, sideways-tempo, even upside-down-tempo. Almost an hour had passed, and the band was tired. Take five, Miles said as he flashed a nostalgic smile. Although, the band didn't just take five, they took the rest of the night. As the musicians walked out of the studio, the room filled with emotion. Miles was mentally exhausted, but deep within, he felt better than he had in years. The rest of the band astonished. History had just been made but the world would never know. See, that was just a practice session, and although it was recorded, would never be released to the public. At least, that's what they thought. Nowadays, pretty much everything you can imagine is on YouTube, and that's exactly where I found it, and that's what's playing in the background right now. After nearly four months of living with Elena, and after returning to the studio, he was finally ready to return to his own apartment. As the car pulled into his Manhattan townhouse turned drug-ridden wasteland, Miles felt ready to confront the mess he'd made. He stepped foot in the house, expecting a cold, dank, disgusting feeling to greet him. But it wasn't a feeling that was there to greet him, but a person. Cicely Tyson was sweeping the floor with a smile draped across her face when she said, Welcome home. Miles was awestruck with surprise and Great appreciation for this person. Okay, so you might be a little confused. Who exactly is Cicely Tyson? And why was she already at Miles' house with the broom in hand, ready to clean like she expected him? So let me explain. The two dabbled in relationship territory back in the early 70s, and even stayed in touch through the darkness of Miles' last few years. So she was in the loop about him staying with Elena for the past few weeks, and was happy to hear about his return home. So happy, in fact, that she decided to surprise him by showing up hours before he even got home just to help him get his place cleaned up. Change is what held the two back early on. You know, the classic failed love story. She wants him to change, he's in denial about even needing a change, and yada yada. But when Miles walked into his house that day, He truly felt different. And something about him felt different to Sicily as well. And so the two got to cleaning. The two cleaned for three days straight. I know, sounds like a long time, especially to be cleaning. But to Miles and Sicily, it flew by. By the time they cleaned, all there was to clean. The two were inseparable lovers. An odd first date, to say the least. They awakened passions that had been dormant for years and turned what was left of that house back into a home. Whenever Miles and Cicely were together, which was pretty much all the time at this point, they ate a strict vegetarian diet. Cicely had already been living a healthy, active life, but Miles had some catching up to do. Cicely, at times, offering brutally honest remarks about how she hated the cigarette-ridden smell and taste of his breath after kissing him. She was probably the only person in the world Miles would truly listen to at that moment. And she knew it. Not only did Miles cut back on the cigarettes, but slowly started replacing the empty whiskey bottles with empty water bottles. And the lines of cocaine for green kale protein shakes. Here's Cortez McCoy, a friend of Miles' speaking about that time in his life. It's from the documentary called The Birth of Cool on Netflix. He was running up and down the beach and... Trying to be a vegetarian <laughs> which was which was amazing because he couldn't do it. Miles would say, come by the house, pick me up, man, and take me somewhere where they got meat. miles felt inspiration flowing through his soul once again. At this point, he could continue living a happy life, never releasing any music ever again. But he wouldn't do that. He couldn't. So he went back to Columbia Records and walked in there feeling like a million bucks, fully expecting to walk out with another record deal. But George Butler, remember him? The executive vice president of Columbia Records? Well, He was furious at Miles. George heard the rumors about the session Miles had participated in. And even though not released, with no infamous Miles Davis trumpet to be found on any single one of the recordings, it was still a breach of their previous contract. Anything Miles recorded was supposed to be produced by Columbia. Columbia wanted their hands on those sessions. And now, Miles was furious. They fought and argued and bickered until finally Miles left the office without a new contract. It was now 1980 and Miles had been through a lot to say the least. A lot of time had passed, but he needed that time to build the physical strength to tour or to even pick up his horn again. A thought process that started out with pain and fear, but ended here with an evolving creativity that surged through his veins. It left him with an undeniable urge to play. Miles, with no fear, started from square one. In a way, he even retaught himself how to play the trumpet. He was also starting from scratch in the way that he now had no management and no record label to release the plethora of new music he'd been developing. So he reached out to an old friend, George Ween. He kept bringing tapes to my office. Of the different sounding band, the electronic band. I shall pay you $70,000 to do two concerts at every fish Hall. He looked at me as if I was crazy. Nobody did that. And uh, I wrote out a check for $35,000 and gave it to him. Miles took that $35,000 and what did he do with it? Bought a brand new Canary Yellow Ferrari, just to show up at that gig in style. Miles Davis was back, and he wanted everyone to know. Miles was 55 years old, with a band of musicians that was half his age. But on that stage, he felt half his age. He felt like a whole new person. At this point though, even his lifelong fans were skeptical of his change. It was hard to trust Miles Davis. The same Miles Davis that was mighty close to drunkenly passing out on stage just a few years back. But Miles was making an effort to recover, and He would need more than just a little effort. Miles woke up every day with a reinvigorated passion for music. But that didn't change the fact that his body had become dependent on an assortment of substances. Remember, I said some things changed. When he felt 25 again, he wanted to party like he was 25 again. I feel like I'm starting to sound like a broken record. Miles is inspired. Miles falls back into addiction, and falls deeper into depression. Miles finds inspiration once again, and kind of gets out of that depression. But then the cycle continues. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's just how the story goes. Life isn't a linear story with a beginning, middle, and end. It's messy. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently. And about the ego. Because, well... It's pretty obvious at this point, but Miles had a big one, so bear with me for just a moment because I'd like to talk a little bit about the ego. According to the one and only Webster's Dictionary, it is defined as the self, especially as contrasted with another self or the world. Basically, it's one of the biggest contributors to how each of us uniquely view and interact with the world and ourselves. Fun fact. Ego is actually the Latin word for I. So one question I've been wondering when thinking about the ego is how it's related to the very thing we've been trying to figure out this whole season. And kind of the central question of this entire season. And that is, what exactly does cool mean? And what makes a person cool? Especially someone like Miles Davis, who's so closely related to cool but at the same time so far from it. There's a particular trope in TV and film that Miles Davis fits perfectly into, and that is the classic bad boy trope. Han Solo, James Bond, John Travolta in, well, every movie he's pretty much ever been in. So what do they all have in common? The bad boy usually feels a sense of entitlement, a desire to go against the rules. In other words, they're all impossibly cool and they all tend to have a pretty big ego The cool guy trope and the bad boy trope are often synonymous as So many of the characteristics intersect naturally. The bad boy is literally the antithesis of the good guy. Yet we, as the viewers, are especially drawn to these characters. Why? A YouTube channel called The Take made a phenomenal video analyzing the bad boy trope, which I'll link in today's show notes as well. I absolutely think you should check this out if you're at all interested in pop culture. They also go into a lot more depth than I can go into here, but here's something from that video that I think is important for the point that I'm trying to make. Quote, Bad boys tempt us because they offer a fantasy of making the wrong choice. By doing this, we remind ourselves that we aren't bound to the expectations of others. We experience the fact of personal freedom. The bad boy literally helps us to feel free. Unquote. The attraction to the bad boy is powerful. And sadly, I wouldn't be surprised if it played somewhat of a role in attracting the countless wives that Miles Davis beat. But an interesting part about the bad boy trope is that they're actually pretty good people deep down. But at the end of the day, (laughs) it's just a trope, not reality. Next episode will be the final chapter in the legend of Miles Davis. So, in between now and when that episode comes out, ask yourself, what does cool mean to you? Like all Music Legends episodes, this episode was written and produced by me, Willie Miller. I make this podcast completely independently, so it really means the world to me when I see your reviews and all of your kind words. I appreciate each and every one of you who listens and enjoys Music Legends. Making this podcast is a lot of work, and it's completely free for you to listen. All I ask for in return is for you to share this podcast with one other music lover in your life. That's it. Again, y'all are the best, next episode is gonna be a doozy. It's all been building to this. Okay, ready for the show notes. First off, like I said, I will definitely be putting a link to the infamous Miss Last Summer Session, as it's called, which are the sessions that Miles did at Elena's home studio during his stay with her. Also, I have a few articles for those of you who like to dive a little bit deeper. One of them is an interview with Elena Steinberg, uh, talking about her friendship with Miles Davis, uh, which I think is super fascinating. You really get an interesting glimpse into Miles Davis's life from a different perspective uh, as someone who really had an admiration for him. Um, let's see, uh, the other is a People magazine article published right after Miles Davis's return to music uh, in, I believe, 1981. Uh, It's definitely an interesting glimpse into the time period, but also just goes through a pretty in-depth description of his journey up until that point in time. And that'll do it. That's all the reading material I've got for you today. But there's one other thing. Well, maybe two. So, number one. I gotta give a big shout-out to two beautiful humans that helped me tremendously through this episode my good friend Britt, who did the voiceover for Julie Corio. You can follow her on TikTok at Commit to the Brit, where she posts tons of super interesting Taylor Swift content. Taylor Swift is a music legend who I'd love to cover at some point in time if I ever finish this Miles Davis season. But of course, only with you, Britt. And my next shout out is for my cousin Caleb. Those were his fingers on the piano during the section when Miles was learning how to play. Caleb has some beautiful ambient piano recordings up on his SoundCloud as well as a few of his great DJ mixes. I will link both Caleb's SoundCloud as well as Brit's TikTok in the show notes, so please check them out, they are amazing humans and I thank them tremendously for helping me out with this episode. Alright last but not least folks, I'm working on something extra special for the last episode of this season. And, uh, I want you to be a part of it. All you have to do is send me an audio recording of yourself explaining what the word cool means to you. What comes to mind? What kinds of things do you think of? Who are the people that you think of when you think of cool? You can't say Miles Davis. (laughs) If you have a voice memo app on your phone, you can use that, whatever works. Then, once you have it recorded, Just email it to me at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com. Alright y'all, I'll catch you in two weeks. Peace.